bulls locking horns. A bitter court battle waged between beloved federal prosecutor Thomas Crane Wales, who was considered a pillar of the Seattle community, and the defendant, who has become most well-known as the pilot with an alleged deadly grudge. Some say that bitterness was the motive for those shots fired in the dead of night that left Thomas Wales bleeding out in his Seattle home. It's alleged that the lone shooter was the pilot, or if not him, he was the maestro of a small conspiracy, his way of exacting revenge against Wales, who he believed ruined his life. Or that's what some people say. It's been nearly 20 years, the pilot has never wavered from proclaiming his innocence, despite nearly two decades under the FBI's microscope. No charges have ever been filed against him and the murder of Tom Wales. But what if there was something else at play here? What if federal agents had gotten tunnel vision against the pilot? What if the bad blood story between the prosecutor and the pilot was just the tip of the iceberg and the real story lay underneath the cold, murky waters of Wales's case files? An alleged conspiracy far more insidious involving a helicopter, the pilot, the government, and a corporation playing puppet master. Was it just Tom was, you know, didn't want to lose face and wanted to say he got a conviction and keep his record intact, you know, as a prosecutor? Was it pride? The more we learned about what was going on at that time period, the more curious it became. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Carolyn, I, I really like that you bring up that fact of, did they get tunnel vision? Because I think one of the things that is so interesting about a lot of these cases is the questions that are asked. It's not the answers necessarily, but it's like, did you ask the right questions? Did you talk to the right people? Because a lot of these investigations might never come to fruition without the right questions being asked. So that is just such an important part of this puzzle that in this case, it sounds like maybe they didn't get to the right people, at, at least not right away. Well, and we'll get to that. But it became pretty clear up front when I, when I started casting the net for interviews with people in the know that it's not a topic that people want to talk about. When we started this podcast, it was actually one of the first cases that came to mind because I, like everyone else, had read all the news stories. I mean, it's been a long story, an important case in Seattle. If he was killed in the line of duty while from one of his cases, you know, he will be the first federal prosecutor to ever be assassinated for mm. doing his job. So, I mean, it was a big deal. Wales was a very beloved member of the community. And I mean, it hit Seattle really hard. But like I said, when we started this podcast, I was really interested in, in covering it. And I asked someone heavily involved in the true crime scene in Seattle. I won't say exactly where this person lands to protect their anonymity because they were really cagey when the first question I was like, hey, what do you think about this case? I'm thinking about covering this case. And they were like, oh, I won't touch that case. 
And I was like, why? And they said, well, because of the feds. I don't want them coming to me if I, you know, published anything or did anything. I, I wouldn't want them to, you know, come knocking on my door, which seemed really strange. Right. It seems like, oh, come on, you know, that wouldn't really happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but after I've done this case, I it don't know. It makes sense it, now. It makes, it <laughs> makes sense now. And so, but it also... You know, the FBI has been in charge of the case, has clamped down on the flow of information, releasing only bits and baubles here and there. And in fact, I had listened to the podcast, Somebody Somewhere, and that's by David Payne and Jody Gottlieb, both are former CNN journalists who spent over three years putting together their first season, season one, on this case alone. So you can imagine that they go pretty deep. And in episode one, they talk about how they were contacted by the FBI and Seattle PD, you know, telling them to cease and desist, that they didn't want them covering this case. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting because you had mentioned that podcast. And so mm -hmm. I started listening to it as well. And to hear how much pushback they got from both the feds and local police who, you know, didn't want them to, to look into this case. And it wasn't like it was right after the case happened. I mean, they, they did their podcast like 15 years after the murder. Yeah. So no. you would think by now the feds and SPD would either have the case closed or would love for other people to help them out and get involved to help them close it. But it was just the opposite. Well, and there's a lot of pressure points on this case. I mean, it's pretty, it's unsolved after all these years and all the resources. And we'll get to later just how many resources that they have put on this case. But a lot of the background I wanted to acknowledge, it was gleaned from the Seattle Times reporters Steve Miletic and Mike Carter, who've been dogged after this case since the beginning. So, Kim, so many threads to pull in the murder investigation of Tom Wales. It's nearly a 20-year-old unsolved case of a federal prosecutor. But let's start at the scene of the crime. That chilly night in Seattle, it was a Thursday, October 11th, 2001. That was right around the beginning of the tech boom in Seattle, a time before the new titans of industry would transform the Emerald City, forever replacing the old with the new. But the Queen Anne neighborhood has always been a jewel of the city. Nestled on the highest hill, a few miles away from downtown, the neighborhood was crowned Queen Anne in homage to the architectural style of the homes an affluent neighborhood where Seattle's elite tucked in nicely to the growing city. Now, Tom Wales parked his red Range Rover in the driveway in front of his two-tone brown restored 1910 Craftsman-style home. And I just have to say, red Range Rover. So this guy was not afraid of the spotlight. Oh, yeah. He was okay with people looking at him and noticing him. I just had to point that out. No, and, and I was thinking exactly the same thing. I mean, he's got, you've got this beautiful home, you've got the red Range Rover, and that was, you know, he didn't seem like a person that was uppity like that, but he definitely liked the finer things in life. But he was also very, from interviews that I've read, you know, he was very down to earth and relatable. So Wales at that time was an empty nester and recently a di divorcee. And that night, he was home alone. By 10.30, he had padded downstairs to do some work in the basement office. He still shared with his ex-wife. The basement had windows with a view into the darkened backyard. Now, unbeknownst to Wales, as he sat typing out emails at his computer, a man who had evaded security floodlights 
had crept up to the basement window, stood watching him eventually pulling the trigger from just a few feet away, firing pop, 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 at least five shots. Two of those shots hit whales, one in the neck and the other in his side. Hearing the shots, neighbors called 911 and cops were on the scene quickly. They saw the bullet holes in the basement window and got inside where whales lay bleeding out. He was rushed to Harborview Medical Center where they tried to save him, but unfortunately he died at 1.17 a.m. Wales was only 49 years old. Homicide detectives and Seattle Police Chief Gil Kurlikowski arrived at the house within an hour of the shooting. I think that the police, the police chief actually lived four blocks away. FBI agents arrived at around 12.30. And as the scene of the crime was processed, investigators realized they had only two clues, the bullets and the shell casings that were left behind. Forensic scientists believe that the murder weapon is a Makarov semi-automatic handgun that was fitted with a special barrel. So it made different markings on the side of the, mm-hmm. the shell casings, and or not the shell casings, but the bullets. So former U.S. attorney Mike McKay in a press conference would say they believed the killer stalked his prey. He was careful on the night of the murder to avoid setting off floodlights in the yard that were attached to motion detectors leading investigators to believe that this was a carefully planned execution. So let me ask you a couple of things about the scene of the crime, because I I think this is really interesting. This is happening in Queen Anne, which is a relatively tight community, meaning the houses are literally pretty close together. Mm -hmm. So did this person come through another person's yard to get to his backyard? Do we know how they got in? Were there any footprints or anything at the scene? Yeah, like no footprints. Um, they they know now that the killer went on the side, you know, that red Range Rover. Mm-hmm. There was a there's a space between the two homes. And, okay. and they like a side up. yard. Yeah, side yard. But to your point, that wasn't a random crime. It was cl- they could see that this was clearly not a random crime and that there was no robbery. Nothing was stolen. And despite Wales's house being very close to his neighbors, only one person reported seeing anything. According to Seattle Magazine, uh, the neighbor saw a white man walking down the street that was only partially lit with streetlights. She says he was walking real fast and got into a car parked under a tree on the well-lit block and took off like a bat out of hell. This was around 1040. That's the only physical evidence they had. That was the only eyewitness account. There was no footprints. There was no fingerprints there was the the killer did not go inside the house and there was nothing it sounds like that really made this guy stand out like she couldn't notice a scar or he was super tall or anything Mm, i mean just just, some white guy you know (laughs) vanilla yeah i mean that was pretty much it so without a lot of physical or forensic evidence left behind at the scene of the crime detectives would have to take a hard look at motive who would benefit by having tom wales dead The first line of inquiry in a homicide, as you know, is always looking at the spouse. So Wales' 27-year marriage had broken up a year before, but by all accounts, the divorce had been tough on Tom. His wife came out as a lesbian, but ultimately, he had been very, very supportive of his wife. And it sounds like if they were still sharing the home, I mean, you wouldn't do that if it was a tumultuous divorce. Yes, exactly. And she she was a literary and still is a literary agent. And so she used that basement office for her uh, business. 
Besides that, at the time of the murder, Tom's ex-wife was in Europe with their grown children who were in their early 20s. And I think it's a really good time to talk about what Tom Wales was really like, because as law enforcement began trying to put the pieces together, digging into who the murder victim was is important. Police found out then and over the years just how much he meant to his children. Here they are reminiscing about their father. He loved uh, really bad movies, uh, especially action movies. He loved the outdoors. I think it's because of how he grew up. He loved camping, hiking, mountaineering. Uh, When I was a kid, we climbed Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams, Mount Shasta several times. I think Shasta was probably our favorite mountain. Well, in general, I would say the one thing I remember the most is just how much my father would encourage me to try my best and um, to see how far I could go. He always believed that um, even though I was a girl, a young girl or a young woman, that I could climb as high um, or even higher than Tommy. Uh, And I eventually did when I climbed Mount Rainier and uh, scattered his ashes in memory of, of our father. Okay, this may be the first time you're getting me in tears here. Oh, I know. I can only hope that when my kids grow up, they would talk about me like that. Well, and they have, in all of the the video that I've combed through, like, they have just been dogged in their, you know, begging the public to come forward. I mean, this letter that she wrote to, they, they called him Pops, about, I mean, I don't want to start crying right now. She talks about how she was looking down at the steering wheel and she saw her hands And it reminded her of her father. And that is so poignant. But, like, my husband has his mother-in-law's hands. I know. I'm literally, like, I have to dab my tears right now. Yeah, exactly. And and I get that. And she talked about how his hands were strong. And and she described them. And I totally understand how those you know it's just the, those the little details, details that that really it's, it's almost like when you hear a song or you smell a scent and it takes you right back there yeah and and she basically you know great dad great person and colleagues also describe him as having integrity beyond reproach he took his job extremely seriously both in terms of you know the element of protecting the public and indeed helping the people who he prosecuted as well. You know, he viewed them as people too. I mean, he didn't just, you know, think that his job was to put people in jail for the maximum amount of time. He believed in justice. He is one of the few men I know who had the most integrity I've ever seen exhibited in a person and towards others. He was also incredibly loyal and strong. He left such a strong impression about um, what was right and what was not in terms of personal behavior, interacting with other people, um, sort of honor, personal integrity, uh, that, um, you know, even after he's gone, he's basically the voice in the back of, of your head saying, you know, you really need to do the right thing by this person. When it came to business, he was all business, but when it came to, you know, the rest of life, he always sort of had a smile on his face. But there was a duality to Tom Wales' nature. He was very loving, fun, gregarious, but he was also known to be stubborn. I think Jeffrey Tubin's 2007 piece in The New Yorker does an amazing job 
of breathing life into Tom Wales as a complicated person. You know, one who ate peanut butter and ketchup sandwiches what? every day at work for lunch. I know. That's disgusting. I, you know, <laughs> and and as he would eat these sandwiches, you know, he would fiercely debate with his colleagues. Uh, and AUSA, Wales was known as a fierce competitor who could be prickly. Even downright ornery when he dug in, attributes which served him well as a prosecutor, but also some allege that stubbornness could have gotten him killed. So investigators took a look at Wales's girlfriend, too, at the time. Um, as I said, he was a newly divorcee. He'd been playing the field a bit. Could a jealous boyfriend have killed Tom? Mm. But there was nothing there. There was another huge red flag in Tom's life, his work on gun control. Wales became outraged, rightly so, obviously, after a school shooting at one of his kids' schools where two kids got injured. And in Wales' fashion, he used that outrage to do something about it. He became a gun control activist, taking the mantle as president of Washington Ceasefire. That activism, though, as investigators looked into it, had put Wales in the spotlight. Now, it's important to pause here and remind everyone that the night Wales was killed was on October 11th, 2001. Anything come to mind about what was going on around that time, Kim? Well, it was a month after September 11th. Yes. For two reasons, this is important. First, as the United States was struggling to make sense of the new reality, it was suggested that pilots carry guns. I don't know if you remember that. I certainly yes, do. Yes, yeah. I do. And, and there was this controversy about should we have federal air marshals on the planes? And if we do, should they be in uniform or should they be sort of undercover? Or should we let the pilots have the guns? Or should it be the flight attendants? And yeah, yeah there mean, was a lot of discussion around that. There was a lot. And Wales came out very vehemently uh, publicly via a broadcast debate on a news show against the idea. A little over two weeks later, he was murdered. So ultimately, investigators ruled out Wales' gun activism as a motive for murder. But the second reason we need to just talk about the 9-11 relationship to this case is because Wales' murder didn't get the national coverage that it would have if our country wasn't grappling with you know, the worst terrorist act on U.S. soil. Maybe the FBI would have gotten more tips earlier about the case that would have prevented what some believe to be the full steam ahead tunnel vision against the pilot. But in the absence of any evidence that would lead investigators to someone close to Wales or someone who wanted Wales dead because of his work on gun control, the only thing left for them to look at was Wales's work as a federal prosecutor who specialized in white collar crimes. Investigators combed through all the cases he had worked on in his 18 years as a prosecutor in Seattle. One case stood out, his last, what Wales would call his helicopter case. From the beginning, in the nearly 20 years since Wales was murdered, when you read a lot about what's in the news media about the case, it's mostly centered on the case involving that helicopter. More often than not, when there is an update from the FBI directly, or something gets leaked out by the FBI, the standard line after the description of Wales's murder is something to the effect of, the FBI's investigation has long focused on a former Bellevue pilot who Wales prosecuted in a failed fraud case in 2000. Agents theorize that the pilot held a grudge. 
We see this time and time again. So we don't know what he was being prosecuted for? It's never really mentioned in the news media. It's it's briefly mentioned or it just says that he's being that he had been prosecuted and he held a grudge and the, the charge was dismissed. The pilot after the and we're going to go into that case. OK, that's a huge okay. part. Yes. It's a huge part. Now I'm dying to know about that case. Exactly. But <laughs> but I think that you, we, and we will. But, you know, for example, you know, when the re- reward was bumped up to um, from I think it started off at like twenty five thousand dollars in the beginning and it was bumped up to a million. It then goes back to the pilot. Right. Or when in 2002, the special prosecutor was replaced with someone with more experience, it then went back to the pilot. Um, or when, when it was leaked that investigators had chased down leads on the pilot, like, for example, his homes had been searched multiple times, his work, bank and phone records. And he was asked to give a handwriting sample in 2006. They got a really strange lead. A letter postmarked from Las Vegas was delivered to Seattle's FBI field office from the handwriting said the sender was Gidget with a Las Vegas address. The type letter said, Re Thomas C. Wales. Okay, so I was broke in between jobs. I got an anonymous call offering to shoot the guy. So I drove to Seattle to do the job. I did not even know his name. Just got laid off from a job. Nice talking lady. I didn't know her name. She called me talked to me by name, and asked if I needed some money. I agreed to pursue the matter. Hell, I was going bankrupt. I drove to the address and then parked some distance away north of downtown. I kind of camped out in the backyard of this house and waited for the guy to settle in at his computer. Once he was there, I took careful aim. I shot two or possibly more times and watched him collapse. I absurdly waited a few minutes and then left. I was sure he was dead. Retracing my steps, I dropped off the gun, found my money, and returned to Vegas. I feel bad about it, but I needed the money, and there was no witnesses. I don't think that guy killed him. (laughs) Well, the analysis from the FBI's behavioral unit, they said that it's possible the letter writer was connected to the crime. Coincidentally, the pilot was in Las Vegas when the letter was sent. I'm sorry. I don't think he did it. Whoever wrote that letter, I don't think he did it. I don't think he did either. To begin with, he says, I shot twice, possibly more. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure by that point it was known that Wales was hit twice by bullets. Yeah. So anybody could have known that. Like for him to say, I shot twice, possibly more. Mm -hmm. If you were the killer, you would know Mm -hmm. how many times you shot your gun. Well, and then it doesn't, the way that the writer writes, it doesn't, ring true to me like they kind of make it seem like he's real not simple but nice talking lady i didn't know her name she called me talk you know and well then, it almost sounds like he's trying to yeah. make them think that a woman is behind it is what it sounds like to me like that whoever this is is trying to maybe put them on a rabbit trail towards a female suspect well i think that and then they said i absurdly waited a few minutes and then left i mean this the writing style just doesn't i think that they're just mucking it up like they're just trying to I don't know I think it's definitely a red herring but who knows they never figured out who sent the letter they obviously thought that um you know their number one suspect was the one and that's why they asked for the handwriting so do they feel like 
they felt like this letter really was connected to the killer or they just didn't know? Um, I think that they ultimately they didn't know. They coincidentally said the pilot was in Las Vegas when the letter was sent. But they I think the behavioralist, uh, the FBI's behavioral unit, you know, they were like, you know, this could be a hoax, too. You know, yeah. there's nothing there's nothing here. They're smart. Yeah. So <laughs> and then like at the five year anniversary of Wales's murder, the FBI released a sketch apparently of a suspicious looking man who was seen pulling a small black nylon suitcase. He is described as a white male, late 30s to early 40s, 5'7 to 5'10 with a slim build, black hair, and a chipped left front tooth. So I guess this person was reported in Wales's neighborhood Wait in the a minute. weeks before. But so somebody had to get close enough to tell that he had a chipped tooth. In the dark. How close do you have to be oh, to well, see that? Oh, well, wait a second. Yeah, this was before. Even if it was daylight, yeah, though. Yeah, you had yeah. to be close enough to see that this person had a chipped tooth. Yeah, exactly. That seems odd. It does. And th- and so this wasn't the night of the murder. It was this weird character was seen in the weeks before. But if the... you see a stranger in your neighborhood, mm-hmm. do you get close enough to see if they have a chipped tooth? Yeah, I think it's an interesting odd. point. It is odd. Um, But the Wales Task Force didn't know about it until 2004. So three years after the murder, we get this tip that there was Mm -hmm. somebody with a chipped tooth in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Nobody thought to bring that up Mm -hmm. three years earlier. I I know. Yeah, I know. So just to bring it back again, all these different news stories that would come out would all basically have the same thing. The FBI's investigation has long focused on a former, you know, blah, 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 blah. It talks about the failed fraud case. And one thing about that case is after it was dismissed with these little charges, the pilot had his attorney file a motion to try to get his court costs um, uh, reimbursed reimbursed for like $125,000 for malicious prosecution. And so that case was still going on. You have to understand the scope of the FBI's investigation was over three times the amount of documents than in the Enron case. So when, And that was the biggest financial fraud case in the history. So the fact of the matter that this case, the single person murder, is larger than any government investigation is unbelievable. And yet they still haven't figured it out. Yeah, because of this pilot case. So I talked to the creators of the podcast, Somebody Somewhere, whose first season is all about the Tom Wales case. That was Jody Gottlieb. She's the executive producer of Somebody Somewhere. And David Payne is also an executive producer and host of the show. And he talks about the selective information about the case that's been shared with the public. We think that the pilot, we collectively, the public, has been led to believe the pilot did it is through all the reporting that's come out from the Seattle Times, which has come directly from law enforcement. There has been no independent uh, evidence out there uh, that the pilot did it or, or really a satisfactory explanation as to why he would have gone up there on that night to shoot Tom Wales. He was in litigation with Tom Wales. He, the case against him had already been dismissed three months prior and there was no culpability. So if you just step back and say, who would likely have wanted to kill Tom Wales, there's a much different list that you could put together. Yeah, I mean, if his case had been dismissed, beef over, you would think. Yeah, I think that they tried to make the case that it was such a feud and the pilot was so angry that but he why had wouldn't to go he kill him before the case was over? Like, why would you wait for the case to be over and then go back and kill him? Well, you've seen that meme that's like, hold my beer, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> there's even more that's going to make you okay. be like, what? Okay, what? All right, okay all right. so what's cool about uh, David is that he is a formal federal prosecutor. So For- he's the, Formal? Former. Uh, is, is a... F- <laughs> David's also a former federal prosecutor. And he and Jody are both former CNN journalists. And so they really have the cred to go after this. And probably the connections do. as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and they are able to do what no other journalists have been able to do so far in this case. It's fair to say they, we have spent uh, more time than any commercial or print journalists covering the story on a regular basis. I mean, the Times have done incredible reporting, but they also have a whole list of things they cover. And so David and I really did kind of a deep dive into this thing where we were living and breathing it for, I think now we're coming up on our two, uh, David, I think we're at two and a half years, three years. Yeah, I think we started. uh, So we spent some time Digging and investigating and it's a super um, it's a super you know. complex case too. So it's a no brainer that I wanted to talk to them. Yeah, and, and so they're them. still looking into it now. Well, they have um, a different season out. They have a season ah. two that deals with the jungle murders. You okay. know the homeless camp, yeah. but they still go back to it because the case is still evolving in real time. And a lot of the time that they spent was actually looking into Wales's last case before his death where for more than three years, he worked on a case involving alleged fraudulent retrofitting of helicopters that were built primarily for the Vietnam War. The pilot was one of the defendants in that case. And because of the resentment and bitterness he felt against Whale, allegedly that's what fueled his desire to kill Tom Wales. But did it? Here's the big picture, the macro picture. The FBI has uh, leaked. And, and believes and has told uh, just about everybody that they believe the person who did it was this pilot. And he is a commercial pilot. And the reason they think he did it was he was prosecuted by Tom Wales in the year before his death in a case uh, in which this pilot and his partner w- were charged with illegally retrofitting a Bell helicopter. And what that meant was that they took an old crashed Huey helicopter. uh, Oftentimes from Vietnam. A military helicopter and put civilian parts on it. And then they would get it certified by the FAA to fly. Now that's, you're like, why would you do that? Well, the reason that, that these two were doing it as well as a number of other people around the country was that you could get firefighting contracts from the government that were extremely lucrative. So if you had a helicopter that could fly around firefighters, it was much more valuable because you could lease it to the government for fighting fires than an old military helicopter that was not certified. So underneath the whole theory and the motive was this crazy helicopter case. And even the fact that Tom Wales brought the case as a criminal case in the first place is bizarre. This went into the grand jury and we talked to witnesses who testified in the grand jury and we're like, what what was he doing? Why was he following this case? And why did he stick with it for three years? And then how did it come to be that when that case was dropped, because Tom Wales dropped the case three months before he was killed, why is it the pilot was so mad that three months later he went up to his house, staked it out and shot him? 
It just, the, the, those facts seem weird on their face. So do we know, did it ever come to light why Tom Wells decided to make this a criminal case? Well, first of all, when the FAA brought the case to the Seattle office, they had done so previously. And an AUSA, a federal prosecutor, turned it down. And then they went back, the FAA went back to, uh, th- a lot of this we haven't reported, by the way, so you're going to be breaking some, some news. Okay. Uh, but the, uh, the investigators who were involved with that case went back and got Tom Wales and his boss, a guy named Bob Westinghouse, to take a relook at the case and bring an indictment. But it was one of these the, very curious indictments because it charged these people in California, not the firefighting couple, another group of people in California with retrofitting and these guys up in Bellingham with retrofitting, and it charged them together in a single conspiracy, which was also really weird. So, okay, (laughs) we're we're getting off to this other Mm -hmm. helicopter case, Mm -hmm. but I feel Mm -hmm. like it's necessary because it's so connected. Yeah. Um, The California helicopter case, the the Bellingham helicopter case, were those people connected? Were they working together to retrofit? No, they weren't. And the picture that one could infer by the alleged actions of some of the FAA authorities by bringing the case... Why were they why were they shopping this case around? You have a handful of entrepreneurs on the West Coast who are not related to one another. I mean, there's the pilot and his partner, but these other people in California are not related to the pilot and his partner who see an opportunity separately to either retrofit the Hueys, which are there's like 10,000 that were manufactured by the Bell Company for the Vietnam War. And they're just sitting around in different places because obviously we're not in the Vietnam War anymore. And if you get them recertified by the FAA, you can make some money either using them to fly firefighters into fires for lucrative government contracts or loggers, or you can just sell them. Like, I think in this case, the pilot and his partner wanted to refurbish it so that they could sell it for $1.2 million. So why didn't the FAA just not recertify these helicopters? Well, David and Jody say it's unclear why why Wales would take the case in the first place because there wasn't anything on the law books to show that it was illegal to do so or that these retrofitted helicopters were unsafe. So there's this internal debate in the FAA and with the U.S. Attorney's Office on whether you can even do this, which is why it's so odd to be a have have been brought by Tom Wales in the first place. Yeah. So a lot of these people, a lot of these helicopter companies had previously been doing it for over a year or more with these contracts. So now that they're coming back and saying, no, 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 we're just kidding. You can't have your airworthiness certificate. We're denying it. It just seemed so implausible and suspicious, um, frankly. And when someone says, okay, it's okay to fly and now it's not, um, what are they basing that on? And so that was sort of the carrot and stick for us to continue digging more and more and more on this. Man, she sounds so much like you. Like you guys could be besties. Oh my gosh, that's so funny because I love talking to them so much for so many different reasons. I mean, when you talked about your rabbit holes and yes. and like you, I, I was like, thank goodness that there are people on the planet who do this kind of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We'll get to this later, and I I don't like keep saying the tease, but it's like. This case is so convoluted and complicated, but but they kept digging. 
They discovered that according to one FAA expert, there was actually zero merit to Wales's case. Wales was sort of backed into a corner when the FAA expert witness, who actually was the one to certify the pilot's helicopter, that person had been subpoenaed in a grand jury in Seattle. And this guy would not testify to support Wales's and the FAA's argument that retrofitted Huey's Huey helicopters were unsafe. In fact, that same FAA expert would later tell David and Jody that he allegedly felt threatened to testify by an FAA employee to say that the retrofitted helicopters were unsafe. But instead of accepting defeat in the face of this new evidence, Wales still charged the pilot's company with a misdemeanor crime, and it's believed that the pilot's partner took that deal and paid the fine just to be done with the case. I mean, yeah. the, the pilot didn't even sign off on it, but because the other guy was like, I think the president had signing power, he was able to just do it. Well, uh, if it's just a misdemeanor <clears throat> and a fine, and he's making millions of dollars off these helicopters, worth it. Well... I think that it was still up in the air as to whether or not they were going to be. They hadn't even this this pilot. I mean, this helicopter, in my mind, it was reminding me of. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but there was an episode in Brady Bunch where there's there's this voodoo tiki and whoever touched it had like bad luck. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Okay, that. Everybody who seems to. T- <laughs> okay. Everybody who seems to uh, to touch these helicopters, these little these little entrepreneurs they end up having to go through hell with the federal government, with the FAA going to prosecutors and saying, hey, we need to, to stop this because it's not safe, when really they can't prove that it's not safe. Were there any crashes involving this type of helicopter? I mean, was there anything that had happened that caused the FAA to make this kind of change well, and here's in that policy? Link, here's that link that I talked about, about the alleged money trail, uh-huh. okay? Their investigation also revealed troubling new information about the alleged potential conspiracy between employees of the Department of Justice, the FAA, and Bell Textron, the company that built all these helicopters. It's alleged that Bell Textron was manipulating the FAA because it wasn't illegal or unsafe. The reason they wanted Wales's office to go after the pilot, and remember, this is all speculation and allegedly if thousands of these Hueys were converted, that would mean that the government wouldn't order more helicopters from Bell Textron. That's what I was wondering if that had anything to do with Do they have any evidence of communications between Bell and DOJ and all that? Well, we have. They dug up some, some dirt. Ah. But that's a nutshell version of that story. And you realize you have to listen to the whole podcast to truly realize the full glory of what David and Jody have put together. So as part of their investigation, Jody and David uncovered a document that purports to be an internal Bell Helicopter Textron memo confirming payments to 17 government officials, all of whom were involved with multi-year efforts to ground Bell retrofitted helicopters. On the list of people allegedly paid were various U.S. Forest Service personnel, FAA officials, and two Justice Department lawyers, including Tom Wales, although his name was misspelled as Wales being W-H-A-L-E-S. Okay, but if you're going to bribe people, would you then write it in a memo? When confronted about the letter's authenticity, which was generated more than two years before Wales's death, the alleged author of the letter, Helen Petty, 
gave conflicting information about whether she wrote it. Now, remember, this is an internal memo. So that's why we have to say, you know, this hasn't been fully authenticated. This is what they found in their research. And when you think about what's at stake here, you know, it's Wales's reputation. You know, the scary thing is, is I find myself skeptical of just about everybody in this story so far. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm skeptical of the pilot that he didn't do anything wrong. I'm skeptical of Wales, that he wasn't involved in this conspiracy. I'm skeptical of the FAA and their reasons for wanting to push this case to the prosecution. I mean, everybody in it seems to have some kind of nefarious motives that could have compelled them to do things illegal. Well, and and if you listen to the podcast, it, it it's it's so many different rabbit holes, it, you would feel even more conflicted. There are all these different guideposts and signs that you see with, you know, his name's on the memo. He, he brought this case. There's really no explanation for why he brought this case that we can determine uh, if he wasn't somehow, you know, incented to go along with it. On the other hand, family and friends and colleagues were consistent that you know, this guy was a straight-up guy. Stand-up dude. True, true arrow. Atticus Finch, you know, really fought for the good guys, was really adamant and passionate about, you know, gun control for the right reasons because of shootings in high school. I mean, he, he really comes across, when you talk to anybody who knew him, as no way in hell would he do anything wrong at all. Which also, you know, you kind of go, well, we, you know, everybody's a sinner and everybody does stuff wrong. And I would add that um, one thing that was definitely consistent across no matter who you talk to was that no matter what, he was this stubborn guy. Like if he thought he was right about something, he would pursue it. So I think more than anything, uh, you know, that part of his personality trait had a real impact on, on what happened either way. Next week in part two of our deep dive into the Thomas Wales murder case, we'll discuss the Mr. Big Detour in the FBI's investigation. Did the move showcase law enforcement's willingness to think outside the box to catch an alleged killer, or was it just even more tunnel vision against the pilot? We'll also talk with Jim Fuda from Crime Stoppers about that $1.5 million reward. And that's a lot of cash, why isn't anyone biting? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. <laughs>